So if you could turn your, in your Bibles to Acts chapter 4, we're not going to do two chapters today, although we are going to do little bits of two chapters, so we have a little ground to cover. But as Mike said, this fall, we're reflecting on the Lord's words in Matthew 16, 18 that says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And we're asking, what is the church? Who is the church? What is the church's mission? What's the destiny of the church? What are our priorities? What are we supposed to be doing as the church? That's the um, idea. And we're looking at through Acts, not verse by verse, but we're looking at what the book of Acts, which is a history of the early church, and not just a history, like a, like a dry you know, historian's history, but it's something that tells us about how the Lord built his church, and in doing so, we learn um, really what we are doing here, even today, 2,000 years ago, in the same church. And so do you recall, what is the church? If somebody were to ask you, what is the church, what would you say? And I know it's awkward to answer, so I'll answer for you, <laughs> right? But it is the people of God, the collection of all the people of God, all the people that have been reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. And sometimes we talk about um, the church in a couple of ways. There's the universal church, um, which is the body of believers all over the world, right? In all different cultures, all different countries, all different languages, but all people who are still one together, one, one body of people who are all worshiping Jesus Christ, and we also maybe call it the invisible church sometimes because you can't really tell who is part of that. I mean, we can look at each other, but I mean, there's a grand scope of people out there. There's, in Ephesians 4, 5, um, Paul writes, there's one body, by which he means the church, and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. And so we might be separated by all of these things, space, in fact, time, right? We have thousands of years of... Um, of members of the church who have gone before us, and who knows, maybe some after us. Um, but we are one church. However, we also talk about the local church, or maybe the visible church, because the Bible says, you know, love one another, serve one another, encourage one another, help one another. All of these one another things, you can't really do it to people all over the world, and certainly not in people all times. And so the Lord has given us these local churches or physical instances of the church. And so, for example, here we are in Chapel City Church in Camarillo, among other churches, even in Camarillo, and there's a couple hundred of us where we have the opportunity to know one another, to care for one another, to live out the things that the Bible says that Christians ought to do with one another. And so while it's a true and glorious um, truth that there is a church all over the world, millions and millions of people. It's also critical to understand that when the Bible has all of these commands for us with one another, that we have been given this church here where we can exercise those things and where the Lord can work on our own spirits, you know, in this, in this body. Mike read today in John 17, and, and among the things that were in John 17, right, we saw some kind of amazing truths, but a couple things I want to focus in on before we really get into the scriptures here. Um, he prayed in, Jesus was praying in this thing, and in verse 11, he said that we as people, he prayed for us that they may be one, even as we are one, right? So one of the Lord's prayers, like just as he was going off to his sacrifice, was is that we would be one. And a lot of what we're going to talk about today is what it really means for the church to be a unity, what it means to be in fellowship. Now, it's called the church's generosity, and we're going to get to that, but that flows out of this oneness. But it's even more than that. Um, after, in verse 22, Jesus goes on to say, the glory that you have given to me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I and them, 
and you and me, that they may be perfectly one. Now, what he's saying in there is not just that, that we would be one, but in the same way that the Father and the Son are one, in the same way that they share perfect unity, Jesus is praying, I want the church to share in that unity, that same sort of thing. And not only that, unless, did I, did I not get there? Not, oh, and I did. And not only that, that they may be perfectly one, um, but the same glory that you have shared with me, I'm sharing with them, right? So it's not just that we're unified as people, but we get to share in the glory of God himself, right? That's part of the promise here. And the verse concludes that they may, may be perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. And so one of the things as we demonstrate this unity or this fellowship is that it's a, it's a way that God shows to the world his love for us by our unity. And it also shows, um, it shows that God sent Jesus Christ, right? It shows the glory of Christ in the church. People can't just see Jesus, um, but they can see his church. And that's, and anyway, what we'll see here is, and what we, we saw last week is that when the Holy Spirit came to his people, one of the things that he did is he taught his people to speak boldly, to speak God's word. And through that, disciples are made. But what we're going to see today also is when the Holy Spirit fills his church, um, what we see is that the filling of that church, the unity that comes out of that, is another way that, that God makes disciples. He draws people to the church because through this unity of the church, it demonstrates that God really did send Jesus, and it demonstrates that God really loves his people. So what is the church? It's a collection of God's people, um, and we're here called together um, called to worship together, called to grow in holiness together. And so let me read our scripture. Our scripture today is Acts chapter 4, starting in verse 32. And we're actually going to go into the first few verses of chapter 5 as well. So let me read um, 32 through 37. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him were his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands and houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. And thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. This is the word of God. And let me pray. Father, as we, as we sit here and we worship you by hearing your word, would you please give us eyes to see what's going on here? Give us ears to hear your word and your voice that's in your word. Would you enlarge and enliven our hearts so that we would be, we would be inclined to rejoice in the good word that we're hearing and also that we'd be inclined to follow uh, in obedience. So Father, help us because without your spirit helping us to understand, we can't. So we depend on you. Help us as we worship today. In Jesus' name, amen. So we were created to live in fellowship. Um, we're created to live together. When God created the heavens and the earth, right, every day at the end of the day, he said, for whatever he made, this is good, right? It was good. Do you remember the first thing for which God said it's not good after his creation? It was after he created the man, and he said it's not good that man should be alone. And so from the beginning... Um, from the beginning, 
you know, we're learning that God was creating a people. It started with a man and the woman, but growing into a whole body of people that together would live in unity, just as God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit live in unity together, and we all glorify God together, and that was the idea. But of course, sin entered into the world, um, and it fractured the harmony that was between man and God, and between then the husband and the wife, and then between the children and the parents. There was, and there became kind of an alienation or an aloneness um, that kind of invaded this, this fellowship that we were supposed to have, alone in our desires, alone in priorities, alone in like our dreams, alone in like even meeting our own needs or in our, satis or our uh, efforts to satisfy our own needs. And, and maybe to put a finer point on it, we could use the word independent maybe instead of aloneness. So now we're in a state where we value our independence, independent in pursuing our dreams, independent in providing for our own needs, independent in setting our own priorities. This is not the way that God you know, created the human race to be independent or alone, but to be together in fellowship. And, and one way that that was sort of exemplified, you know, way back in the old days was with the Tower of Babel. When the tower was built up, God came down and said, you know, this will never be. And the people were scattered, scattered first by their language, the language divided, fractured, eliminated trust, eliminated not just the ability to communicate, but to trust, you know, to work together and that sort of thing. But then, of course, in the second chapter of Acts, that all, you know, reverses. And in one day on Pentecost, all of the different people from all over the world were brought to one place. All of the people from all over the world, in their heart language, heard the gospel. And all of these people from all over the world started to repent and trust in Jesus. So it said 3,000 people were brought into the church that day. It continued to grow, grow day by day, it said. Um, and, and there were signs. And there were, so, like, Acts is kind of speckled with these amazing things that happened at different points. But throughout, if you read carefully, then there will be this little paragraph that says, and this is what the church was doing. And it always talks, and day by day, the church was meeting together. They were in fellowship together. They were sharing with one another. And throughout the Bible, there's these events that happened, and yet the church constantly is brought together. And so we're going to, our focus is on generosity, on the generosity of the church, but I have no way of really separating that from the fellowship of the church. So it's kind of all mixed together, so bear with me. But we're going to start with a source of generosity here. So as we start in verse 32, it said, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. And so the full number of people, so thousands of people at this point, are talked about of being of one heart and one soul, which is really a remarkable thing. This is the source from which all the generosity that we're going to see in the next verses comes through. Now, we're all different in different ways. Like, where does this one-heartness and one-soulness come from? We're all different in different ways. Um, and, um, but we have this in common. Outside of Christ, we were hopeless, because it says in Ephesians 2.12, it says, we were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenant of the promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, we who were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And so we share some amazing things in common in as much as there, there's all sorts of differences in like personalities and backgrounds and all sorts of things like that. But even as we're singing, like we're singing this song today, in fact, you know, the Christ has conquered all song. I was, I hope I don't lose my voice now because I was belting that one out because that's something that I can sing with my whole heart full-throated because this is something that I know is true. And I know that every one of us know that it's true. If you read through Ephesians chapter 1, you can choose a few different spots. There's a few glorious chapters in the Bible where we see what we all have in common. But to take um, Ephesians 1, 
it says that um, in verse 3, it says we are blessed in Christ with every spiritual blessing. And then he goes on to list a whole bunch of things which are really not even exhaustive. It says that we've been chosen by God. Each one of us who trust in Christ can say that. We have been adopted as sons and daughters in Christ. We have been redeemed, which means like bought out of slavery. We're a lot, like it says, we're hopeless, separated far away, but redeemed, bought back, um, and that at the cost of the blood of Jesus. It says we've been forgiven of our sins, again, at the cost of the blood of Jesus. We've been given the revelation of God's plan, right? This is pretty cool. It would have been enough if God would have said, all right, I've got you, you're mine. But then he shows us, he kind of pulls the curtain back and he starts showing his people what he has done. And it's really, it's a marvelous thing. You, you, you go through your whole Christian life sort of realizing more and more what he's done. You know, Christ said to his, his, his disciples uh, at that last, um, on his last evening with them, right? I now call you friends because I am telling you what I'm doing. The master doesn't tell his, tell his like servants what he's doing, but I am telling you. And throughout the New Testament, God is revealing more and more. I tell you this mystery and then pulls the curtain back. And we've been given the Holy Spirit as a guarantee, right? So we've been given the Holy Spirit who empowers us and equips us and teaches us. But not only that, he's a guarantee or a pledge or a down payment ensuring that we're going to come into this promised inheritance. So the point is this, is that, um, is that all of this we share in common. The church isn't a club. It's not like a loose association of, of people, right? It's not something you just kind of come and, come and go with, right? This is, the church is a specific people of God who share not just something in common, but, but, but real reality in common. The most kind of the, the, the I don't know, the deepest things, the, um, the um, I'm not quite sure what to say, right? But, but we share not just a place, not just a language, not just a culture, but we share knowing the true and living God. We share forgiveness of sins. We share in the guarantee of an inheritance to come. And so together we praise God, together we come and we worship God. And I mean, isn't it a blessing to be able to set aside like this time each week to, to kind of step away from like the craziness and insanity of the world, to step away even from sort of like the, the disbelief and mocking of the world, even to step away from like the triteness or the triviality or the superficiality of the world. And we get just even for a moment to sort of feast, like focus our minds and recall like what God has done. Even like Tracy said with, with Boofest, right? We can just kind of walk past it. But if you take a step back, something amazing, you know, maybe going on that we don't, we, we don't know and maybe we'll never know until glory. Anyway, the point is this, is that we, the people were of one heart and one soul, and it's out of that that the generosity flowed. It goes on to say um, that no one said any of the things that he owned, or I'm sorry, it says, no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And so, as a result of this heartness, this one and soul, um, heart and soul oneness, um, there's a few ways that we can think of um, really not possessing these, not possessing these things. Because we all own things, we're all given things, we earn things, we, you know, we have at our disposal things, we have to take care of business and all that sort of thing. But what does it mean to not, um, as it says here, to not, to, to, to say that things don't belong to me? And so, for one is, um, we are all part of a body. One of the metaphors for the church is the body of Christ. And so, if we are all one thing, there's a, sense in which what, there's a sense in which what's mine is yours and what's yours is mine. I don't hold back what is mine because to give it to someone else or to, to, to help someone else or to serve someone else, I'm serving 
in a sense, I'm serving myself. If I, if I cut my finger and I got some blood coming out there, I need to get a Band-Aid, and my other hand grabs the Band-Aid and puts it on the finger, right? This, this, this hand doesn't charge materials and labor for helping this guy over here because it's, it's one body, okay? So there's a sense in which, in, there's a sense in which um, we, are, we are one. There's also a sense in which we don't consider things ours because we understand that every good thing does come down um, from the Father of Lights, um, and so every good thing that we do have comes from God, and we're even taught that, that, that we don't really own our own stuff, but we are stewards of what God has given us, right? And so as stewards, we answer, we, we are responsible for the specific things that we have, but we answer to the Lord for what we do with it. So it's, it's, it's not ours in that sense. You could also even take the phrase to mean it's not mine in the sense that, that I don't desire to keep it back for myself. Um, in Philippians 2.5, in kind of a different context, talking about... Um, the, the giving of himself of the Lord Jesus. It says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. The Lord Jesus really does possess, did possess everything, but he didn't, he didn't call it his own. He didn't grasp it. He didn't clutch it. He didn't hold it back, but he, he gave because he didn't consider it his own. He gave it to his body. So, there's a sense in which, um, there's all sorts of senses in which we can consider things not our own. Um, it says they had everything in common. And again, this is just the attitude of the people. They're one heart and one mind. And when it says everything in common, um, of course, this is really referring to material possessions, really. But, but there's a sense, in, but I want to touch on kind of the idea of the commonness of all the things in the church. Um, so you guys have heard the word fellowship. Does anybody know like the Greek word for fellowship? You heard that? You'll know the word. It's koinonia, right? So the word koinonia, we all hear it kind of, and it's, it's, it's like if you want to say fellowship, but you want to sound like, no, I really mean like real fellowship, I'll say koinonia, right? But the word that koinonia, that koin, koinos part, means common, and that's the same word here. They had everything in common, and the point is this. When we talk about fellowship, Christian fellowship, we're talking about um, living in community, holding everything in common. Again, it's, it's, I don't know, it's a little, little bit difficult to articulate, right? But the main idea that I want to get across is that we live our lives together, sharing material resources as needed, but sharing our lives. And so when they held everything in common, um, it, it means that they, um, they were generous with what they had. And I guess we're going to get to the actual practice of generosity. But, but not just that, they shared what was going on in their lives. The only way that, like, part of, we're still really on the first point here, the source of generosity, but we can't really start to let go of things until we have a close one another relationship with one another. And we can't do that unless we know each other. And so sitting, like, in a room like this, where all eyes are this way, except these eyes, right, we don't, this is not an opportunity for us to exactly get to know one another. We have more of an opportunity, you know, afterwards to get to talk and chat, but it, sometimes it's only for a few minutes. But even more than that, we do have opportunities. I want to encourage everybody, everyone, if you feel like you don't have heart and soul relationship with people, with many people, it can't be with 200 people, right? That doesn't quite work. But we do have small groups. The importance of having um, this, these small groups is not so much just so we can learn more about what the Bible says, although there's great value in that, but it, it's so that we can get to know deeply and closely other people. We meet with people regularly, and even if you're in a small group for six months, a year. We have, Susan and I have friends that we've had for 20 years now because we were in a small group with them for like two years and then it had to disband for some reason, but it just still seems like 
you know, we're very close friends because we were able in that short period of time to share heart and soul. And so I want to encourage all of us. What we're talking about here as we get into generosity, we can't be generous unless we know one another. And in fact, we can't be generous unless we really know one another's needs as well. But they did have everything in common. So the grace, um, so the next, uh, the next verse here is verse 33. It says, and with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. And I'm going to cover this briefly, because it almost sounds like it's not even related. But the amazing thing is this, is when God blesses, he blesses. When the grace of God comes onto the church, um, like, it's given in greater and greater measure. And the grace came like this. First of all, this sharing of all the people, one with the other, holding everything in common, being of one heart and soul, that was, that's a grace by itself from God. Further, the apostles continued teaching the resurrection of Jesus, and this is kind of a shorthand way of saying they were teaching the gospel, not just to the people on the outside and bringing more people into the church, but continuing to teach all of these great truths that we need to hear over and over and over again to the church, and this was a grace to the people. And so it's kind of like this grace of fellowship, this grace of the truth of Jesus Christ being taught to the people um, sort of snowballed into this even greater grace um, that out that overflowed in the blessings of generosity. So I'm going to just kind of move on to the next verse here, verse 34. And this is where we start to see the practice of generosity. There's lots of ways to be generous. And in this, in particular, this is a particular thing that happened at a particular time in the early church, uh, but it is very instructive. So verse 34 says, there was not a needy person among them for as many as were owners of lands and houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid them at the apostles' feet and it was distributed to each as they had need. So it says there was not a needy person among them, right? So part of like, the, this is kind of putting the result before exactly what they did, but because of what they were doing, it says there was not a needy person. It doesn't mean that nobody, there's nothing anybody didn't have that they wanted, right? But, but poverty, not having the food that you need and the drink that you need, the clothes that you need, the shelter that you need, not having that was eliminated in the church due to this generosity. This is, again, this is God's plan for people. We're not designed to be independent. And God blesses some people that they have the income to not need the direct input from the church. Um, but he doesn't do that just, you know, for our own benefit. But he, he provides an entire church of people who provide for one another the various things that they need, physical things, spiritual things, um, etc. We're not designed to live independently. And by the people um, enjoying the grace of God and being obedient, those needs were taken care of. But it says, as many as were owners of lands and houses sold them and brought the proceeds. So what did they do? So you can hear, like, those who owned, owned property, presumably, I mean, presumably it wasn't like their own house, right? It's probably other property that was, that was around. When needs arose, they identified the need and they found, they realized, you know what? The Lord has blessed me. I can meet that need by selling this particular property. And so they, they liquidated some property as the need arose and brought it in. Real and valuable property was sold when the need arose. And consider the time that they lived in, right? So it, immediately at Pentecost, 3,000 people came in as Peter was preaching out in the temple. Like it says, 5,000 men came in and it said day by day people were being added. There could have been really serious issues going on, um, you know, it, especially in a culture like this. You've turned your back, as you turn to Jesus, you're turning your back perhaps on your religious traditions. You're perhaps turning your back on your parents. Um, so what if you're a young man, young woman, and you've turned your back on your parents, as it were? Maybe you're kicked out. 
What if this is something that is so um, disturbing to your spouse that that spouse can't, you know, turns you out or can't be with you? There could be all sorts of situations, or maybe like a trade or a business or something. So there could be like real persecution type reasons for the poverty, but regardless of the situation, um, there was different people in need. And as the need arose, people would sell these things. And how did they do it? How did they do it? It said they laid the proceeds at the apostles' feet. And so this is just a way, of course, of saying they brought it, you could say they brought it into the church, um, giving, like laying it at the apostles' feet is kind of like deeding it over <laughs> to the apostles. Um, and so why do you suppose that they brought it to the apostle, to the feet of the apostles? I mean, obviously, like when we're, when we're being generous, when a need arises, we can give to that need immediately and directly, and that's often a very good thing to do. And again, small groups are a great way where you're, you're tight with people, where needs really do start to come out, and when you realize there's a need, you can take, some people can help take care of that need, or you can, you know somebody who can help with that need, and we can do it kind of directly. But in this case, it said they were brought to the feet of the apostles. Why go through the church for something like that? Well, one, it could be like a matter of discretion, right? Rather than like shining the spotlight on like this person needs something and, you know, we all call it out and, and contribute directly. There could be a, a, um, a matter of discretion and the church has the ability by doing it like that to, you know, discreetly give to the needs um, as they're needed. It could be a matter of information. Um, like, again, in a church like us with 200 people, I don't know what's going on in the lives of everyone, um, and none of us really do. But, but, but together, like usually the church leadership and through like, some of the structure that we have, those needs can be made known, sort of a little bit of a hub of information. It could be a matter of trust and wisdom, right? If you sold a property, I don't know what a property, $50,000 plot of land somewhere. They, they probably don't even have those anymore, do, they, do we? <laughs> a $200,000 plot of land somewhere. Um, you know, you want to be wise, and you want to have people that you can put your trust in, which the apostles would be that kind of person. But it could also even be a matter of defending against pride, right? Sometimes, isn't it a good thing to give uh, anonymously, right? So that for your, partly for your own protection, right? You know, it's very tempting to give something, to write your name on a check so that everybody can see, like, this is, like, this is who gave it. Uh, but as a check on my own pride, on your own pride, you can, you can give anonymously, and that's another way to do it, is to kind of go, you know, through the church. Um, in fact, you know, we happen to practice at church giving by putting it in the boxes that are in the back. We do that, I think, just, again, it's kind of a help to all of us to uh, not make a show of it. Of course, as it's a matter of, our giving is a matter of worship, so kind of passing a plate around during the service is a good way to recognize that it's a matter of worship, that we give generously um, to the needs around us. But, but either way, you know, note we have the boxes in the back, and again, it's, for me, it's, it's a good thing because it is a good check on my pride. Um, you should know that, um, you know, when, when the money is collected and checks are counted up and that sort of thing, um, there's kind of different people in there every week, so nobody really knows what's going on, and the pastor doesn't get to see any of it. So I remember I was once at a church where the pastor was kind of commenting, like, I don't see who gives what, so if I walk past you and I don't recognize you, I mean, it's not, it's, you know, it's not because you don't give, it's because I probably just don't like you, <laughs> and then he kind of laughed. But... <laughs> Anyway, the point is, is that for all of these reasons, they brought, the, they, brought, um, they, they, they brought money to the feet of the apostles. And what we see here is voluntary giving. There's no compulsion made at all. And we're going to see that really clearly in chapter 5. But there is this voluntary giving of the people. As a need arose, hearts were moved. This heart and soul fellowship of the church recognized that there was a need, and that need was met. 2 Corinthians 9 and verse 7 says, in a slightly different context, um, talking about a specific offering, 
It says, each must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And I'm sure kids, you've all heard that. <laughs> God loves a cheerful giver. Cheerfully obey. Um, but it is true. Um, the Lord is not really interested in your money per se, because God owns everything, right? He has control. He's sovereign over how he cares for his people. But we are given the, um, we are given the opportunity to participate with him in, in caring for the needs of his people. Also in 2 Corinthians 9, um, it says, God is able to make grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. It's saying God is so gracious. His blessing just overflows on each one of you, maybe in ways that you don't understand. And again, part of this could be money. Part of this could just be time. Part of this could be energy. It's like in all sorts of different things. But God overflows us with blessings. And so that not only can we give to others, but as we give, we're not really depleted ourselves. And, and, and those of you that are generous sort of understand that, um, that thing. By giving freely, we testify to our faith in Jesus Christ. We're trusting in him to care for our needs so that as we give, we're not worried about, I mean, a little bit, we're not really worried about where that's money going to go or if I kept that back, will I have more of a reserve to protect about what's going to happen in the future? It's demonstrating our trust. It's also demonstrating that, our, that we really trust in the hope that is to come, that these things that we have right now really are a vapor, as Ecclesiastes put it, puts it. We also see here is focused giving. They gave as the need arose. Um, and so again, sometimes it's just in the course of interacting with people, as opportunity arises, you'll learn about a need of the individual or someone that they're with, and your heart may be moved to just meet that need, you know, which is great. Um, and again, sometimes there's just needs in the church. There was like a few years ago, I was thinking about there was like the roof had to be replaced and it was not in the budget, I think. And so we said, I don't know, we needed this many thousands of dollars and, and people pulled together the money. And this is, a, this is a generous congregation. When the needs are made known, I've never really seen it where needs are made known and everybody just sort of shrugs and it's not really met. It really is remarkable. And one of the lessons that that teaches me is that we probably need to do a better job of making our needs known, which again is difficult to do like in a large context and in smaller contexts, it might be a little bit easier. And then finally, like, you know, they were giving to the church. As we said, they trusted the apostles, or now we would say the elders or deacons with distribution of funds. Um, and again, and also we, have, we do have a benevolence fund, which is made exactly for that. And as you may know, technically it's collected at the first Sunday of each month on communion Sundays, but um, any check that's made over to benevolence fund is put into this fund. And, and many, many people have been really, really helped by this. And it's, again, it's one of those things that you don't really wave a flag and say it because, for, because it's sometimes sensitive issues or you know, things like that. But it really is a, it's a real blessing. I mean, and many of us have been at that point where you're really out of options. And then the Lord provides either through the church or through something else. And it's, it's a blessing for the receiver. It's a blessing for the giver. So verse 36, and we're going to transition on to the chapter 5, what's going on in chapter 5. So verse 36 is an example of this generosity. It says, thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, he sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. And that should be a cliffhanger. I mean, it's kind of at the end of the chapter, and so we usually close our Bibles and say, well, that was nice of him, wasn't it? But really what you should be hearing at the end of that is, dun, 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 because something's about to happen. But Barnabas is set forth an example. I mean, he was a pillar of the early church. His generosity and money matched his generosity and spirit and graciousness. He was known, well, he was called son of encouragement by the apostles. But not only did he give in this particular generous way, but he was the one who was always kind of making things happen. He's the one that when Saul, Paul, was converted, 
Like, and Paul started knocking on doors to I want to join your Bible study. Like, the, the blinds all shut, and everybody locked him out until Barnabas took him by the hand, introduced him to the church, and said, look, guys, he's, he's okay. Or, you know, he went, he was the one who, um, who restored, or, well, he restored, you know, his, I guess it was his cousin, John Mark, um, who failed on a missionary trip. And when, when, you know, Paul refused to go with him, Barnabas stood by him, encouraged him, and encouraged him into future work. And so he did this a number of times. Every time he shows up, he's sort of pulling people together and making things happen. So this takes us to chapter 5. And I'm titling this The Perversion of Hypocritical Generosity. So not all is well in the church. And again, this is sort of a sign that just shows that, you know, we sometimes look at the early churches like everything was perfect, everything was rosy. Um, And there were problems. There were real problems. There were real problems between people, but there were some serious issues as well. So let me read the first few verses of chapter 5. But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? After it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. And when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. Great fear came upon all those who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. So this starts off very um, similar, and we're supposed to see, like, this is a, supposed to sound very much like what happened with Barnabas. He sold some property, he laid it at the apostles' feet, and incidentally, he was presumably honored for it, in a, some sense, because we're, we're reading about it now in the Word of God. So Ananias and his wife, Sapphira, who are in the church, um, do the same thing, ostensibly. So they sold a piece of land, they bring, they bring it to the apostles' feet. And what we see here is it doesn't seem like a big thing, right? So what, what's the difference, right? You catch the difference. The difference is, is that if they sold the land for $100,000, um, they brought 75,000 and said, here you go, church, um, in worship of God, we're bringing the $75,000 that we made for selling this land. And so, I mean, perhaps they wanted some of the honor that came with, um, that came with like this kind of a generous act, just like Barnabas had, um, but not so much at the cost of like true generosity. And again, it seems like a pretty severe, a pretty severe consequence. I mean, let's say that it was 70, let's say it was 75% of what they sold it for. I mean, that's still, that's a lot of money. That could help a lot of people. That could do a lot of the Lord's work. But of course, you know, the idea in all of this is not, we need the money, we need the money, we need the money. The idea is um, the, the unity of the church. And so when Peter confronts him, he says, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Right, so here we start to see, like, what, why so severe? This is, this is really the issue. This is a lie to God. And again, this is, this is a little bit shocking, and it's a little bit troubling, you know, in, in, our, in our hearts, because do we lie to God sometimes? I mean, are we totally honest? It's, it's, there's a sense in which, well, I mean, you don't lie. How can you lie to God? Because he knows everything. Um, but there is a sense in which we can convince ourselves. We can rationalize things away. So there's, there's a little bit of a danger. But what's even spookier about this, or, or kind of more frightening about this, it says Satan has filled his heart. Peter recognizes that Satan has filled his heart. And the issue is not, has, it doesn't have to do with the money itself, because, as it says, while the land remained unsold, did it not still remain your own? 
The church is not, Peter didn't say, Ananias, come on, I know you got some land and we need it. Sell it, you know, hand it over. There was zero compulsion. In fact, again, even like in our church right here, nobody is asking anybody to give a certain amount of money. Um, but what we're looking for is cheerful givers. We're looking for people um, among us who recognize that we have a heart and soul oneness relationship with one another. And as needs arise, you know, we, we, we try to take care of that as we can because our hearts are moved to do so. Again, the Lord loves a cheerful giver. But while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? After it was sold, it, even after you sold it, the money was still all yours. Nobody was asking for it. Like, why? Um, why did you do this? But again, so why, you know, why so severe? And so for one thing, um, it breaks the unity of the church, the fellowship of the church. This was a corruption of the purpose of the church, right? The purpose of the church was to show this incredible unity that God, that God brought. Remember what it said? It said, Jesus was praying, I want this, this people to be one people, um, because as they do, they'll know that you sent me, and they'll see, that you're, they'll, you know, they'll see your glory and your love for them. And when we, um, you know, if we are to trade um, some temporary monetary gain for the glory of God, or if we were to tr trade some cheap honor, right, try to buy kind of honor at a discount um, at the price of polluting the glory of God, right, it's a, it's, a, it's, a very serious, it's a very serious thing. And so rather than being one and having things in common, Ananias held back for himself something that, claimed to be, that he claimed to be his and not God's. Just as, just as the Father and Jesus Christ, the Son, are one, the church is one body, we're called one body. We're supposed to be kind of looking out for each other. We're called the living temple of God, where we come together and praise rises up to God. He meets us in his midst. And again, to corrupt that, to pollute that, is serious. The church is called the bride of Christ, um, such that we are in union with Christ, so that when you touch the church, you touch him. Remember that when um, Christ met Saul on the road, he said, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? When, of course, Saul was persecuting the church. And again, you know, why is this so severe? Um, you know, I recall in, in Psalm 51, when David is confessing to the Lord, you know, his sin, he says, the, the sin of adultery, the sin of murder, he says, against you and you only I have sinned. Peter recognizes that in this case, it's not just against the church, uh, but he says, you have lied not to men, but to God. And so it's this deceit, this lying, this hypocritical kind of taking of honor onto oneself for your name instead of God's name that had to be judged, and since it was marring this image of the church. Again, you know, thank goodness, God doesn't treat us really in this way right now. We don't see people dropping dead, right? If we did, we, you know, this church might not be the size that it is right now, because even in myself, I recognize that same temptation. I would love to be recognized. I'd love to be especially recognized without having to do very much. I would love to find a way to retain some of my own stuff, in a sense, you know what I mean? Um, but God is not a God to be trifled with. The church isn't a club. The church is not a convenient place where we go when we're feeling like we need it or when, you know, when we're lonely. Um, God is holy. He, his church is to treat him as holy. He held back for himself. Actually, I'm going to move on from there because we're not quite done. The last part of this is this. After, verse 7, after an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And could you imagine, like, if she walked in the back door after this had happened a little bit before, just the silence in the room? Maybe she came in, like, expecting, like, you know, for the honor of the church. But she comes in, and Peter asked her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And this was her chance at repentance. 
this was kind of like a, this was a chance. I mean, it was gracious to ask the question. The chance was there. But she let it slip through her fingers and said, yes, it was this much. And Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. And immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. And verse 11 says, and great fear came upon the whole church and upon all those who heard these things. So, so she had this opportunity of repentance. And in, in a sense, we all get this thing. So none of us are, none of us are sinless. And many of us, most of us, I would, I would expect in the church right now, have repented from our sin, given our lives to the Lord Jesus, who takes away our sin, has redeemed us, has reconciled us to God. But really, this is the point at which we need to take seriously the opportunity of repentance that God gives each one of us. There are, sometimes we have sin, sometimes we have like deep-seated or secret sin that's either, it's like we're so deep in, it's hard. Like, I have a little bit of sympathy for Sapphira here because she's so deep in, you know, how do you admit it at this point? But, um, but and sometimes that's the case with us. But, um, but this is really a heart check for, for each one of us. I mean, is it possible that any one of us, any one of you are playing at church, right? We're here when it's convenient. Um, we smile, you know, we shake hands, um, and our hearts are far from God, right? Even right now, as you're sitting right here, and your mind starts to wander, what things does your mind wander to? Does it wander to the things of God, or does it kind of wander to, like, the things of the world that are, like, the vapors of the world that are kind of, kind of moving away? It says, the Bible says that God's kindness is what leads us to repentance. Every day, extra day that he gives us is this extra day, or, you know, that he gives somebody to turn to Jesus. Like, he could strike any one of us at any moment in judgment, just as he struck Ananias and Sapphira. But he gives each one of us another day, and then God willing, another day, and then God willing, another day. But there, it doesn't happen all the time. There was the man in Luke 12 who said, man, I have, my, my barns are busting out with grain. What am I going to do? I'll build bigger barns. I'm going to fill them up. I'm going to relax, eat, drink, and be merry. And he didn't know that his soul would be required of him that night. And so none of us, none of us know. But do you realize what, we, the, you know, what, what God sets before us? He provides forgiveness of sin. He provides perfect assurance that will be his forever. Whatever we give up, he promises that he will restore, not just in the time, I mean, certainly gloriously in the time to come, but even now. And he does that through the church. And so turn now while there's the time. It, even if you are in Christ, if there is some secret sin, there's something going on that you need help with. Turn now while there's time. And I'm going to wrap up very soon, but as we're done, there will be um, men and women here to pray with you. Come up and talk to them. Maybe you don't know what to do. Maybe you don't know how to get out. Start by talking. Men, Charlie Rutledge has been, has been looking for ways to include men, um, either in small groups or even just one-on-one. -on -one. Certain things are so sensitive that we just need to talk about it one-on-one. -on -one. Now is the time to turn to repent, because God um, takes his church very seriously. Um, God's, not a, God's not a God to be trifled with. So, let me wrap up with this. So, three points of application. First of all is treasure the riches that you have in Christ, right? Read Ephesians 1, read 1 Peter 1, read the first couple of, well, read Ephesians 1, 2, and 3, you know, read Colossians 1 and 2. Read about the amazing things about who Jesus Christ is and what he has done for you. And as your heart starts to well up with the value of where you stand in Christ, the things of the earth will grow strange and dim in the light of his glory and grace. It's a song, and it's so true. And I love that one because it is so true. Um, I'm not here to point my finger and say, give. 
right? I'm here to point my finger and say, love God. Understand what he's given to you. Secondly, is pursue Christian fellowship. We were not designed to live alone. You can't live alone. You can't live a life that is glorifying to God um, alone. You can't do it independently. It's not a call for giving money. It's not, a, it's not even a call for spending your time or being devoted to the church, per se. It's, it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's a call to recognize that you can't do it alone. And people around you can't do it alone, and they need you. So we're one body. We need to care for one another. We're one living temple. We should be worshiping together. And we're the bride of Christ, and we should treasure one another as Christ treasures us. Part of this being in a fellowship is about being open about our needs. I don't want to encourage anyone. There's, there is a responsibility on the receiving end as well. Let us know what's going on if you're at home and you can't be here to let us know what's going on. Still let us know if, if you can never even make it to church anymore. Let us know. I'd love to call. I'd love to write. You know, help us to understand what needs there are so that we can help. And then finally, as God has blessed you, bless others. Realize that God has blessed us tremendously. Realize that the more that you give, the more that God will bless. And so I am delighted to be part of the church. It does cheer my heart to kind of get to meet with us, you know, every week. And I get to be here a couple other nights a week, too, for that same reason. Um, if you need to confess sin and repent, I encourage you to do so. Confess. James tells us, confess to one another. Um, and again, the prayer team will be really happy to pray with you, as would I. So with that, let me pray. Father, what a treasure that you've given us in the church. And what blessings that you give us that we, we should share in common the most important things. Our blessings in Christ, our adoptions as sons and daughters, our reconciliation with you, um, and a hope for the life to come. All of these things eclipse um, everything else that our difference is. And Father, would you help us, even this week, to find ways to, to, to come together? It would be my joy um, to see small groups add people to them, to see conversations in those small groups deepen to the point where we can, you know, confess what we need and get the help that we need. Father, you have given us everything that we need, um, instruction in your word, empowered by your spirit, and to provide for one another. Um, so, Father, would you help us to do that? Help us to be generous of heart, not grasping and holding on to what we have um, in money, in time, in resources, in interest, um, but to pour it all out um, for your glory and for the good of your church. We can only do it with your help, so please help us in Jesus' name. Amen.